Before I start on this, I want to say something about next week, actually, because um, I don't want to forget this. And maybe I'll even remember to say it at the end, too. That would be a grand thing if I did that, too. Um, you will see in the like, weekend's communications, um, we, we, we're going to have a two-part series, the 2nd and the 9th, November 2nd and November 9th, um, that we have just put together, so hot off the presses, so to speak, um, about the war in Israel and Gaza. So the first session <coughs> is going to be um, Dr. Vin Clark, who's a historian who's going to, and a parishioner, who's going to talk about where did all this come from, what's the historical background of this conflict. I don't know whether Vin will be going back to the Garden of Eden or not, but he'll at least be going back to 1948 and probably before then. He could go back to the Garden of Eden, yes. Hopefully he won't. But <coughs> anyway, I just think it's important to have some context for these things that are driving us crazy. It's always good to know what the history is because the history is always more complicated than what we know from you know the most recent news cycle. So anyway, that's the first one. That's the second. November 9th is Dr. Don Compere. 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 How do you pronounce Compere. his last name? Compere? Compere. Compere. C-O-M-P-I-E-R. Depending on how French you want to be in pronouncing it. Um, but he is the dean of the Bishop Kemper School for Ministry and a professor of ethics there, and that's what he's going to be talking about, um, is the ethics of war and how we might apply, not, not judging the current conflict, but how a Christian might use the framework of Christian ethics to approach war. And, oh, by the way, there's this one going on right now, but actually it's a way you can... Um, look at conflict, whatever the conflict is. So those will be, it's just those two nights, the second and ninth, but I hope you'll come, um, and I, I, hope we have a, I hope we have a good turnout. It'll, it should be really interesting. This, too, I think, is interesting. Um, <clears throat> not quite as topical, although timely, yes. Topical, not as much. Um, but we have, these, we have these celebrations coming up, or at least these days coming up, <clears throat> Halloween and All Saints and All Souls, and it just seemed like a good thing to try to tease out a little bit what's what's the difference. At least that was sort of the presenting the presenting question is what's the difference between All Saints Day and All Souls Day and all that. Um, but it leads to deeper questions as as we'll get to. So if we're gonna think about All Saints Day, it's probably good to think about what's a saint, right? What, what do you think a saint is? What, what's, what's your, just off the top of your head, sort of thought about what, what, it, what it is to be a saint? And yes, please use the microphone so that the folks online and the recording can get you. I, I always sort of think it's someone who entirely devotes his or her life to God's work, in, in t whole life. Okay, uh, so complete commitment to God. Mm -hmm. That's a mark of saintliness, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Joyce? Complete love of God and neighbor. A complete love of God and neighbor? Well, that's good. I like that. You will not be surprised to learn that there is not a single answer to this question, so don't worry about trying to get it right. <laughs> so those are both good. Interestingly, in the New Testament, <coughs> it, it doesn't... Well, maybe it means that if everybody in the Christian community met those, those uh, attributes or had those attributes. But in the New Testament, the word saint means a member of the Christian community. So, like, uh, you've got to get it in the letters particularly. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, not just the really special people in Ephesus, but the Christian community in Ephesus. Or, similarly, uh, in First Corinthians. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, you should follow the directions I gave to the churches of Galatia. Th those were actually the saints of uh, Jerusalem that he was raising money for, but same idea. <clears throat> or in Philippians, uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, <laughs> with the bishops and deacons. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you got your saints, and then you got your bishops, and you got your deacons. 
Yeah, that's just as well. <laughs> or Bishop Diane, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a saint, at least initially, a saint was a Christian. And not long after the journey began, the, the meaning started changing to just the kinds of things you were saying. Um, in, in documents around as early as 200 or so, the word comes to mean kind of heroic sanctity, you know, the, the all-stars, which, which is more specifically martyrs and the old term would have been confessors. So people who by their life are witnesses, um, which is what martyr actually means, right, in Greek. Um, martyr is witness. But so somebody who loses their life or a, a confessor, somebody whose life and words reveal this deep commitment, even if they aren't actually killed for their faith. <clears throat> but still, it kind of, it, the stakes went up. <laughs> and saint came to mean more like what we're thinking of now. And so it seemed right and good. I mean, you know, there's no documentation of this, but it seemed, it seemed right and good in various places that there should be festivals for saints. I mean, started out um, being remembrances and uh, feasts, feast days for specific individuals, Polycarp, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, but at some point, somebody or some collection of somebody's said, well, what about all the saints? We should be honoring all the saints. Yes, they you know have a specific day for the for Peter and Paul and whoever else, and but but it would be good to honor saints in general, um, <clears throat> and so there came to be as early as the three hundreds or so a day to as it says in the Oxford Dictionary of the Church to celebrate all Christian saints known and unknown. Um, so not just particular all stars, but all the all stars, the all star team. Um, and initially that <coughs> was observed um, the, in the 300s, that was from St. John Chrysostom, so that's what part of the church that w was originating in. And, and it initially was the first Sunday after Pentecost, which actually makes really good sense. If you, in fact, if you were going to sit there and dream up a time to have a feast of all the saints, that would make a lot of sense. You know, Pentecost is the birthday of the church, right? The day of, or the, the feast marking the coming of the Holy Spirit and the followers of Jesus being inspired to go and carry this message and keep doing this work. So it would make tons of sense to have the next Sunday be the day you remembered the company of saints. I kind of love that. Um, but that wasn't universal in the sense of across the church. That's, that's where it, at least where it fell um, in, some, in some parts of the church. But in Rome in 610, and I didn't put a picture up here, I should have. You know the building, the Pantheon? If I didn't include a photo of it, but the Pantheon was a, a, an imperial structure, you know, a place of worship for the Roman Pantheon, <laughs> the Roman deities. And as Christianity took over and all that, um, in 610, it was consecrated as a Christian place of worship, the Pantheon was. And that was, happened to be on May 13th, 610. I mean, kind of, no, no, I don't think there's any meaning behind May 13th necessarily. But, but that's when the Pantheon was consecrated. And so, at least in Rome and the places where Rome had influence, the, the Feast of All the Saints was transferred to May 13th. And the Pantheon as, as, a, as a building was a place then to honor all the saints in the same way that it had been the place to honor all the gods. Pantheon, right. <clears throat> in, in, uh, in Roman, uh, you know, pagan Roman days. Um, but it didn't stay there. <clears throat> and, and not even very long. Because, and we'll see this story in just a second, starting in the 700s and then into the 800s, um, November 1st ended up being the date chosen, at least <coughs> in this part of the story, because Greg, Pope Gregory III dedicated a chapel in St. Peter's to all the saints on November 1st of that year, and so whatever year it was in the mid-700s. 
And then, as the next bullet says, in the early 800s, Gregory IV set the universal date, <coughs> the date across the church, as November 1st. But why? Well, we'll get there in just a second. The, the November 1st date, we'll get there in a second. But the point is, at least according to our resource, Lesser Feasts and Fasts, which is a great book, um, that All Saints Day expresses the intercommunion of the living and the dead in the body of Christ. What do you think about that? Why do you love it? It's, it, it's just nice to be with all those people from the past. Mm, <laughs> mm. Yeah. To be in communion with everyone who was. To be in communion with everyone who was. We don't get much of an experience of that in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Yeah. Well, and it reestablishes the original definition of saint. There you go. Mm -hmm. The back to the New Testament definition. Yeah. Yeah. In, and puts that all together into one one uh, interactive communion. Yes. Ooh, that's neat. <clears throat> one interactive communion. That's actually fabulous because it's not just that those people are out there floating around in the ether somewhere. It's there's relationship potentially going on there. But then it leaves me sort of wondering how are you really celebrating what was special about these people and how is it any different than All Souls Day when that's the definition? That's what we're wrestling with. That's what we're coming to. Yeah, that's a thank you for the setup. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> perfect. Um, okay, so. <laughs> yep, yep, thank you. you. Get your free sandwich right over there. Um, so. I, th I think, and this is obvious, but it's good to say it out loud, especially in um, a liturgical tradition and the Anglican tradition, certainly we, we find out what we believe about things by listening to what we say when we pray. <laughs> you know, if you want to know what an Anglican believes, listen to the prayers that he or she says. So <clears throat> this is the collect for all saints. Collect, of course, is a fancy church word that means a prayer for a particular occasion or a particular thing. So, Almighty God, <clears throat> you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son, Christ our Lord. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God in glory everlasting. Amen. Now, <clears throat> one of the great things about that collect is it, it get you get to word you, you get to use the word ineffable. And how often can you say that? So that's cool just by itself. But what are we asking for there? I mean, if the collect is, you know, a collect names some attribute about God and then asks for something related to that attribute, and or names something about us and asks something related to the attribute. What what are we asking for in this collect? Would you, would you use the microphone? Sorry. That we're striving to be just like them, to, you know, with a constant striving to be like the saints. Constant striving to be like yeah. the saints. Yeah. 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 Um, give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living. Yeah. So it's the, the example of the saints' lives that's being raised up. <coughs> Anything else you see in that that's noteworthy? Well, <clears throat> for me, it's the business of us being knit together in the mystical body. Mm. Mm, that's, that's cool, too. That's the, you know, I, when my grandfather died, I would pray to him every once in a while. And I didn't grow up in a tradition that bought into that at all. Okay. Um, but I began to have the sense that if you prayed to the saints, it was pretty much the same as me saying, Kathy, would you pray for me? <laughs> That's really important. That's how I see it. So, because I, I think he must still be alive. At least that's what the tradition says. Yeah, yeah. So he, there's a lot in that, right? So he's still alive. That's huge and totally countercultural. <laughs> so he's still alive and interested in having a conversation with you. So not completely otherwise occupied with, you know, harps and clouds or whatever they might be doing, right? But 
willing to be in, in communication with you and maybe willing to say a prayer for you, right? Yeah, and, and uh, if I've been able to take enough time and be quiet enough, I can engage in a conversation with somebody I know who's died. And if I'll be quiet and listen, I will get responses that I know are not psychologically conjuring because they so surprise me. That's been your experience. That's been my experience. Yeah, Joyce, thank you, John. We also always have to ask the Holy Spirit so that all our discernment is from what we hope is you know, someone from heaven and not the other direction, because that happens. Okay. Can you say it again? In Ask other words, we always want to invoke the Holy Spirit first, because, you know, that way, come Holy Spirit, you know, whatever. And then I feel like you've got to be careful, because if you don't invoke the Holy Spirit, you can hear from, from those that are beneath us in hell, too. So, so. You've got to be okay, very careful that what you're listening to is from the Holy Spirit and from that person that's in heaven. That way. Yeah, okay. that's why it says Holy Spirit, you know, all uh -huh. that. Uh-huh. Because yeah. that has happened also. Fair enough. Okay. That's great. Anything else anybody wants to note about that collect? <clears throat> Those are great. So that's what we're praying for when we celebrate the Feast of All Saints. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> so back to the, the question raised a minute ago about what's up with November 1st. So you know about syncretism, right? That, that, that means one religion encounters another tradition and it sort of borrows freely. <laughs> and the religion that wins ends up with pieces of its original, I'm certainly its original meaning and content and everything, but things brought in. Um, that certainly happened theologically with um, Greek philosophy. Uh, that's a much longer class <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to teach well, but it, it is true. But, but syncretism happens all over the place. When a religion comes into a culture that it, where it hasn't, that it hasn't encountered before, often pieces of the culture come into that faith. Well, heard of Samhain? You know what that is? I, don't, I am no expert in Celtic spirituality at all, but there was this celebration in Ireland um, <clears throat> a, a celebration of the harvest, you know, giving thanks for the harvest, kind of a Thanksgiving sort of thing, as well as the start of winter, so the beginning of the dead time of year, which is an interesting thing to celebrate, by the way. <clears throat> Might say something about the Irish that they're celebrating <laughs> the beginning <laughs> of the dead time of year. <laughs> um, and the coming of the, of, of the new year, because the new year for them started at this point. It, it wasn't January 1st, it was November 1st, apparently, but it was the beginning of winter as, as the marker of the change of the calendar. Um, and of course, that makes you think about dying. It makes you think about your mortality. If you're entering into the dead time of year, um, and it's winter and all that, well, so part of what was going on in this, in this festival was the souls of the dead returning to their homes. So ancestors coming home so to speak. And at the same time, to Joyce's worry a minute ago, people would light bonfires to keep the evil spirits away as they're welcoming home their dead ancestors, you know, the spirits of their ancestors. And that was celebrated November 1st. Apparently Samhain means November, or is the name for November in uh, that culture, in Celtic culture. So, the church, as it came into Ireland, adopted Samhain, or co-opted it, or stole it, or ran over it, or <laughs> however you want to look at it. But they, had, they found a successful festival, and as the church often does, for example, Christmas, as the church often does, it, it takes an indigenous festival and baptizes it, and suddenly Samhain is no longer Samhain, but All Saints Day. Why, why would that have worked? Why do you think that worked? I mean, to, why, why would a celebration of the Christian saints, why would it work for that to be enveloped into Samhain? Well, it's, not Samhain. A, it's not a big leap. I mean, if your ancestors are coming home, then it's the church just said, when that's happening, what we're talking about is this. Yeah, we're celebrating the, the, the 
the members of your community, and maybe especially the ones you revere most, yeah. we're celebrating them with this special day. Well, that sounds like All Saints, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's brilliant. It, wor it worked really well, as it turned out. Um, and it worked, do I have this here? Well, here, we'll go back there. It, it, it worked so well that when this was happening is a little bit before when All Saints as November 1st came to be celebrated in the Universal Church. It spread. This mixing of, <coughs> of Samhain and a feast of all the Christian saints seemed like a, 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 a popular, uh, an effective model. And so that same date sort of spread across the church, eventually being made universal in the 800s. Okay, so <clears throat> to what you were kind of raising earlier, what, what, what about the special people? You know, if they're saints, go back to the New Testament definition, saint is any Christian, but we d we're not really satisfied with that. We don't really like that. I mean, yeah, that's what it meant in Scripture, but that's not really what we want it to be. We, we want to we highlight the, the all-stars. So, you know, who's special enough to be revered on All Saints Day? That I, I kind of think that was operative in, in the culture, in the, in the popular mindset. Plus, well, okay, so by, by medieval, um, the time of the Middle Ages in Europe, the, the word saint had come to mean, you know, superstars of the faith. <coughs> and, and about, I think it was 998, something like that, uh, but about the year 1000, the monastic houses centered around Cluny in, in France um, decided to set a date to remember the everyday folks. Not the special saints, but the everyday Christians. And it came to be called All Souls. Now you might, well, okay, so Lesser Feasts and Fasts says, who was being honored there were the vast body of the faithful who, though no less members of the, community, of the company of the redeemed, are unknown in the wider fellowship of the church. Does that sound a little um, familiar? Well, in my faith, we feel like that there are some people that are not, we believe in purgatory, which Steve and I know doesn't believe in, but that's what we celebrate all souls with. We pray for those people that are good people on earth, but they weren't quite enough, purified enough to get to heaven, but yet they're not in hell. So those souls are remembered with our church on All Souls Day, and we pray for them but all the time, but especially then. There you go. You get a free sandwich, too, because that sets <laughs> up exactly where this is going. That's, that's, what's, that's what's under this, and we'll get to that in just a second. Well, I'll, I'll name it now. The, the doctrine of purgatory had come to be by this point. There, there was a sense... Um, and well, we'll we'll, we'll get there. there. There there was a sense, just what Joyce was saying, um, that there must be some place people go who are good but not fully ready to go to heaven. Again, pushing against that definition of saint as being anybody who's a Christian. Because in, in All Souls, you know, honoring the vast body of the faithful, who though no less members of the company of the redeemed, they are Christians but they're unknown to the wider fellowship of the church. And that it gets oh, mm, the, the church decides they must be someplace else. They're, 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 they're not, they're, they're members of the company of the redeemed, okay, but they're not good enough. They haven't been good enough to get to heaven yet. Okay. And in that in that remembering, in, in those celebrations, family and friends were especially, you know, like the folks coming home for Samhain, <laughs> that same idea. Those are the ones that are being particularly remembered for All Souls. Where, are you gonna? I was just going to say, this sounds more like Samhain than, than All Saints. It, it, it does. Yes, you're right. Because the two are really conflated. Be because the theology is conflated, which, which we'll get to. Um, and the worship in... in for, for all souls, focused on asking God to give the departed a share in Christ's victory because we're not really sure whether they got it or not. 
We're not really sure whether they were good enough or not. So we're kind of, you know, pushing them along. Um, so in, in the churches that ended up coming out of the Reformation, celebrations of all souls were gotten rid of because purgatory as doctrine was rejected in the Reformation. So the Roman Catholic Church hung on to it, the other churches did not. So the fact that they got rid of all souls is a pretty clear indication that what was happening with all souls was praying for people to be moved out of purgatory. But it's become, you know, again, like with Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, you know, even now it's come to be a, a, a popular thing, an important thing, because I think, I think, because it taps into that need to honor your ancestors, to, to, to raise up the, the connection, the connectedness that continues. Anyway, <coughs> so for, we looked at the Collect for All Saints. Here's the Collect for All Souls. O God, the maker and redeemer of all believers, grant to the faithful departed the unsearchable benefits of the passion of your Son, that on the day of his appearing they may be manifested as your children through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So what are we praying for there? What do you see in that one? Well, at least a subtle uh, uh, referencing, I think, of purgatory. Yeah, I think it, I guess it is subtle. Maybe not subtle, <laughs> but, but, well, it, but a reference. It, I mean, it's just it's it's just that part of it. Uh, the faithful departed. I mean, grant to the faithful departed. Um, faithful departed to me suggests. Well, why aren't they already in heaven? Right, because they aren't faithful departed. Right, but but grant something to them, the benefits of your passion, that on the day of your appearing, they may be seen as your children. Because maybe they wouldn't be. Right. I mean, that's the implicit yeah. thing you're asking God to deal with, right? Is that maybe they're not going to be seen as your children. Yeah. Here, hang on. Paul, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that uh, <coughs> the, the word that keeps coming through it, this is hope. You know, underneath, uh -huh. underneath so many things, we hope that this you know, and we, and our hope is based on, in this case, the unsearchable benefits of the passion of your son. We really don't, you know, there's so much there we that, that is simply mystery, how this is actually going to, you know, um, come about. But um, yeah. when we think about those who have departed and where they are and where they were, you know, and they're, we, we they're not, we right? have no idea. Yeah, they're not with us, and we're not quite sure yeah. where, where and how they are, right? So many times we hear all the time that, you know, your loved one went straight to heaven, and people forget all about it, and oh, they're in heaven. Well, I feel like you don't know for sure, so you need to pray for those people, because they can't pray for themselves. We have, we're the church militant. We are the ones that need to pray for them. So that, that's a great elaboration I mean, of the and doctrine of our sacrifices and our fasting, you know and say, I hope mom made it, but we don't know for sure, so I'm gonna offer this. There you go, okay. We don't hear that often enough today. Well, that, uh, not in this church we wouldn't, because the Episcopal Church actually wouldn't buy into a doctrine of, of purgatory, but the Roman Catholic Church does, yeah. But even without the concept of purgatory, this sense that you, you don't have a sense, you don't have a measuring stick of whether or not you are currently at a place, and uh -huh. therefore whether or not anyone else you've ever known so I think it does sort of leave this open, hopeful, or like open door of like the concept of faith that at any moment, you know, you can become a, a person of faith and and even in maybe, it just leaves this little bit of open door to the sense that like you can still, things can be redeemed up until the very end. And, and, and are you saying, does it also leave the door open that you might backslide? I mean, that you might need... Yeah, like maybe you're not as righteous 
yeah. as you thought, or yeah. <laughs> which is a which is a dubious theology. I mean, actually, if we like interrogated that a little bit, mm -hmm. no, <laughs> because everybody's a sinner and everybody is not adequate, and yet we're all loved, and yeah. So, um, but it's but there's there's an uncertainty yeah. in, in our hearts about yeah. whether we're good enough, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you say that the church hasn't bought into the concept of purgatory, but I don't think the church is bought out of it either, or we wouldn't have a prayer like that. I think that's right, and and that's kind of the thesis of this whole thing is all saints and all souls practically uh, are, are, are kind of intertwined because we're really not quite sure what we think as, as a church. Okay, so... <clears throat> Now, I'm no Dante scholar, and I am not a, an expert in a theology of purgatory, but the idea, and correct me if I get it wrong, the idea was just because you were a Christian didn't mean you got to go. <laughs> Simply being a believer, being a part of the body of Christ, although that would have been considered to be enough initially, over time, this doctrine develops that, well, no, we're not quite sure, and there's probably still some work that you need to do on your journey to paradise. So at the top of the mountain there is, is paradise. So some, you know, the, the all-star saints would have gotten there directly. Others would have come into paradise after a period of journeying through purgatory, um, having their sins purged. I mean, that's where purgatory comes from, right? Going up progressively higher and higher um, up the mountain to the, the, the geography of, of paradise, okay? <clears throat> so that's, I mean, to John's point a minute ago, th that explains what all souls became, praying for people in that journey to heavenly perfection. Um, and Joyce, still, you, you named it, I mean. He was going to prepare a, a room for them. So I got the impression that there's different levels in heaven, too. And then wasn't it um, John's mother was the one that wanted him to have her son sit on either his right and left side? He said, well, that's not for me to decide. You know, you don't know what you're asking because there are, he has prepared those spots way ahead of time. Which probably was his mother and maybe foster father. I don't know. But anyway, so why not would purgatory have different levels also? You know, heaven would have different levels the way he's talking. Uh, that, that and we talk about the angelic choirs. We know the seraphim are the closest ones to him, or the angels. And then it goes different, you know, different choirs. It's quite interesting. And, and it's that kind of theological reflection that spurs a doctrine like that. Yeah, absolutely. And yet there is the um, thief on the cross who Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise because right. of his faith. Right. It's, it's just fascinating. Coming down to words of faith versus acts of faith, and you know we can look at other, maybe other people in this room are as judgmental or feel like they're judgmental. But I feel myself sometimes judging others and other faiths, where I'm like, but that's not very Christ-like of you, or whatever it is, or having some standard that you hold other people to, knowing that everyone's going to have different standards and holding yourself to that, and um, purgatory comes with the with even in the Catholic Church, you know, it's stepping away from the abusive nature of some of the pur purgatory language of like you can buy your way out right. of purgatory. The indulgences. But, uh, right. Had it not right. been abused and had it not been abused in that way, I do think that the, a lot of the questions still would come up. You know, it's just such a loaded word too. But it's 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 interesting that buying out of it piece you wouldn't realize how in intertwined it is. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. I agree, it just... Nope. Nope. Go ahead, Susan. It just seems that the, the, the notion of having a place to kind of perfect yourself after you die seems so natural to us. Because the um, assumption is we can't be doing that now. Right. And well, hold, hold on to that as an assumption. Okay. 
And I just, I just wonder if it hadn't been for the abuse of the indulgences and all of that, if we never would have gotten rid of the, the whole uh, concept uh, of pig. Certainly, we wouldn't have dropped it like a hot potato. Yeah, yeah right. I, I don't know. I don't know how it would have gone historically. There's also this um, idea of linear thinking that's really embedded in all of linear. linear. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. time is linear yeah. and that time continues to be linear outside of Us, this yeah. earthly existence. Which, you know, going back to All Saints coming um, right after, uh, you said it was Pentecost? Yeah, initially, yeah, the which, after Pentecost. you yeah. know, these are Jewish people, Jewish culture. Um, which is where my heart beats, uh, would be there's this concept that God is outside of time. And so there's, there's actually a, um, didn't I see you at Mount Sinai, which is their version mm -hmm. of Pentecost? Mm -hmm. There's this idea that the entire um, worshiping community is all present at Mount Sinai when the law is given, when the Ten Commandments are given, that everyone is there together, everyone... And, and all the children of Abraham are there. Oh, that's me too, right? And so this idea, and also, just side note, didn't I see you at Mount Sinai is actually a singles dating site for conservative Jewish people. <laughs> so, so that, hang on, that, that theology of we're all there across time and space yeah. is also true about the Eucharist. Right, yes. right. And that's, that's that gift, right? That's, that. that's the company of saints gathered around the table. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's where All Saints Day, you know, as we were looking at it historically around the year 200, it's still carrying that flavor even by mm -hmm. the time of year that it's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Of like, we are all together outside of time. And that there are, there are these moments like Eucharist, like sacraments, mm -hmm. where you can sort of... Um, not exit, but sort of where the... the it's an on-ramp right. into that moment outside time. Yeah. 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 John, what were you going to say? I shared office space with a Roman priest early in my ministry, and I, we spent lots of times. He had, he had his work and I had my work, but we spent hours talking. <laughs> and I, at one point I asked him, you know, help me understand purgatory, because I didn't have any appreciation for it at the time. And he, he said, he, he knew my parishioners uh, pretty well. It was a small church. He said, so think of Catherine, member of my parish. We'd been in the church all of her life. She was a devoted member of the altar guild, pretty much the altar guild, and, uh, but bitter. Just but bitter, bitter because she was, she, she was never married, and they're just so she was kind of bitter. He said, can you imagine her dying and immediately going into the presence of a, the loving the, of God, all love? He said, we kind of would view that as kind of a matter-antimatter explosion. <laughs> and, and he said, so she needs time. She needs time to come to a place of healing so that when she enters into the full presence of God, it will be a warm, loving embrace instead of an explosion. And I always thought that was very useful and very helpful. And lots of times, Protestants don't appreciate something if they don't see it as being uh, biblical. Yeah, right. But I think 1 Corinthians 3, 10 following really gives us a biblical base for the concept of purgatory. Okay. Um, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible. For the day will disclose it when it will be revealed with fire, purgation fire. And the fire will test what sort of work has been done. And if what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. And if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but the builder will be saved, 
but only as through fire. As through fire, yeah. I, and I don't know, but I bet you that would have been the scriptural warrant for the doctrine. Yeah. Um, per the Purgatory, that's, I think, my favorite poem, uh, the three poems in the Divine Comedy. And just before, at, at the end of that, uh, Dante and Beatrice is there waiting for him, and mm -hmm. he goes through that. I mean, uh, and he's he's worked his way all the way up with Virgil, but Virgil has to be left behind at, right. at a certain point. But and in all of the all the the various in this grand tour of he gets a pur of, of purgatory, every you know all these various people, many of them from from Florence. Who he didn't, yes, you know, that right. had problems. He lambasting. With. Yeah, he, right. You know, he put all sorts of people <clears throat> in hell and and purgatory that that he knew in Florence, and uh, they've got these issues. They're they're they have to work these issues out, mm -hmm. you know, whatever they are, mm -hmm. and it takes time. And some of them have been there for centuries, and they they know that they have to do that. This is, you know, they're they're not in in. Uh, in the in in hell they're not in the inferno but um but yeah by the end that's the last step into and then into paradise it, are going through the flames and um it's a beautiful poem i, I mm -hmm. love it i mm -hmm. love reading it and i love c.s lewis's sort of modern upgrade with a great divorce yeah. he gives a, yeah. a incredible interesting picture of purgatory in there that really resonates with me a lot, you know, that we're, it's a journey that yeah. you're on, you're, and that journey will continue, I think. Do you that, think that's that a modern way. romanticization you know. of, of purgatory? Because I wondered back when this was coming around, when, you know, initially when people were, when Christians were thinking about purgatory isn't, I mean, for us it's like, ooh, I get to do more self, like more self growth <laughs> during this time, but uh -huh. it's not, you're, you know, time is not linear, and at that point you're not going up this spiral staircase and like achieving this, like these, everyone's on their own path and, and learning and doing what they need to do, so I'm, I'm just sort of intrigued that like in modern times in a, in a group like this, an intellectual group like this, almost romanticizing this idea of purgatory or, and in some ways, like the straight to heaven approach feels like you wouldn't get I don't know it takes away the humanness of what, what our creation is that we are fundamentally flawed and beautiful and chaotic and have all these things that like most of us will need to work through then and so you said time is linear no. is there time in heaven I think she was saying time is not linear. I okay. mean, for us, it's experienced that way, right? Isn't that we what you're? Yeah. yeah. So, <coughs> yeah. so is there time in heaven? Because I've heard there isn't. Don't ask. I haven't. <laughs> and I don't and, have a video, so I can't. And tell if you. there is, what time is it? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. My my gut would tell me no. My, my gut would tell me it's, it's, yeah, the eternal now, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, what do I know? Yeah, I, it is interesting how, I don't mean this badly at all, it is interesting how much we need purgatory, psychologically, how, how much we need to know that as bad as we are, there's still a chance to improve, a possibility would be an even more radical notion, which is unconditional love, accepting the brokenness. We'll, that'll come in a minute. Well, I mean, if <laughs> I think God needs purgatory. Okay. If he is absolute love there would be no justice in sending any of us I don't care who it would be for an eternity of torture for anything that we've done I mean we have a sense of proportionality when it comes to punishing 
for sin and for brokenness. Uh, we even talk about it in our, in our foreign policy. There ought to be, even governments have a sense of proportionality. Right. Well, surely God can do better than that. And he surely wouldn't do worse. So, so you're saying God needs purgatory in order not to just chuck us all into hell? I think in order for God to be God the way God is claimed to be God, he's not going to torture people for all eternity. Right. Why do you need purgatory for that to be true? Well, because I think we have to come to an accounting for our sins. There has to be a way in which we can be transformed in our sin. It's like Catherine. She needs some time to deal with this brokenness and have it be healed in such a way. And, you know, when we have, a, when we have an understanding of uh, the, the idea that we've got to all get it right here within this, you know, three score and ten, or by grace, four scores, we've got to get it all right in order to be entering into the nearer presence of God, or we burn, that, that just... That just there's nothing about that that seems just to me. Yeah, but that's that. But that's what Father John was saying. Perhaps we don't have to be perfect oh. or burn. Maybe we can just enjoy the grace of. Gr- grace is a pretty central concept for us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't discount that one. Yeah, I think that's pretty important. Well, yeah, okay. <clears throat> and I'm. I mean, just to say out loud, I don't know. I mean. You know, just because I got a collar on doesn't mean, you know, I mean, we're we're all extrapolating. (laughs) We're all taking what we know and feel and have experienced and have read and know in community and looking beyond a mountain range we can't really see past, you know. So we're just doing the best we can with this. And just where you've gone, I mean, the point, uh, to me, what's interesting about all saints and all souls and all that is that it's asking just the questions that you all have been asking. What happens when we die? That's really what these holidays, what these holy days come down to. And, and what you th- how you answer that question says a lot, not that what you think about all saints and all souls is fundamentally important, but what you, how you answer that question says a whole lot about what you think about all saints and all souls as celebrations. I mean, it's sort of a a, a microcosm of the question. So this is a way of looking at it. Not the way, this is a way I just happen to find interesting. Um, <clears throat> so N.T. Wright is an Anglican bishop and theologian and scriptural uh, scholar and wrote this wonderful book. I think it's a wonderful book. It's old now, it's like 2006 or 2009 or something, but Surprised by Hope. Um, it's a great read. So melding N.T. Wright and me. (laughs) A model of heaven, not the model, but a model of heaven, would be to see it in three pieces, three acts or three chapters, three, three segments of a connected story, the point being that the story is connected. Okay? In this model, the first chapter is now. Life as the body of Christ, us participating in the sacraments and witnessing to the reign of God, being the church, that eternal life starts when you're participating in that. Eternal life starts now. Then the second chapter, Wright would say, is paradise. So that's when we say, well, am I going to go to heaven when I die? Is she going to go to heaven when she dies? What was her name? Catherine. Is Catherine going to go to heaven when she dies? So, for N.T. Wright, that's the middle stage. And, and more precisely, he, this is his language, a state in which the dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ while they await chapter 3, which is resurrection. So when we talk about people being resurrected into eternal life, that's not, N.T. Wright would say, that's not what happens at death. That's the end of the story, which actually is the beginning of the story, because time isn't linear, in my opinion, and 
new creation as a circle. And anyway, but the, the third chapter of all this <clears throat> would be resurrection following what scripture tells us about Jesus' return and judgment and, and finally the restoration of the unity between heaven and earth that Revelation describes, putting things back where God intended. So if you flesh that out some, it looks like, well, it could look like this. So if this is chapter one of eternal life, where would we see that? Well, here are some places we might see that. Um, you know, Jesus being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God is coming or the kingdom of heaven is coming, um, and he says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is not coming with things that can be observed. Or you can't say, look, there it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you now. That's one window into it. In, in John, we read this at funerals lots of the time. Um, Jesus is talking to Martha. You know, Martha, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. How dare you not have shown up? And Jesus says... Well, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Lives and believes will never die. That's a process that's happening now. You know, everyone in, this, in the current moment who is living and believing is part of my... Is, is um, moving toward my restored creation. will never experience final death. Sounds to me like eternal life is beginning for that person. I think you can also see it in the inbreaking of the kingdom in those ways that we see love being manifest so beautifully and magically and fully and um, in those times, and if you go and serve somebody, you have felt this yourself, those times when you have experienced the presence of God in your relationship with someone most likely by you pouring yourself out for that person. Kenosis, right? Captured in, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Lord, when do I do these things? Well, just as you did it to one of the least of those who are members of my family, you did it to me. But Martha, he asked Martha if she believed in him that he could do what he's going to do, and she said yes. Absolutely, she said yes. And that because of her faith in everybody else, he yeah. brought him back. And so her eternal life was happening right then. Yeah. I would say. Anyway, th this, is, this is, like I say, a way of looking at it. So if, if chapter one is now, chapter two is, like Wright says, going to heaven. So where do you see that? Well, do, somebody mentioned this earlier. The thief, yeah, yeah, the thief on the cross, you know, awful, terrible person who hasn't done a blessed thing to amend his life but turns to Jesus and says, you know, have mercy on me, forgive me, you know, uh, whatever, I mean, whatever the line is, and remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, he stuck up for Jesus against the other thief. Sorry? He actually came out and stuck up for Jesus, and he said, don't, you know, where is your Right, where is and, your faith? And, and there wasn't any further purgation needed. No. He was the only one that did. Well, okay, that, that's a way of looking at it. I mean, I was always taught that if you didn't do that, you were out of luck. Well, and then, then there's that perspective on it. When, do you, when do you have to have made the choice? Or when do you have to have made the commitment? That's why I like purgatory. Yeah, well, okay, okay, okay. Uh, or in, in Philippians, you know, Paul's writing and saying, you know, I, re I really would rather, <laughs> it's, you all are lovely, but I'd really rather go to heaven. <laughs> you know, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I also think, I mean, this is just me, you know, at the bottom of that beautiful window across the street is that line, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. I, I see that, that piece of art as the, the, the picture of this. Of, of paradise as that time when, you know, and we say this all the time, rest in peace, right? The time when the child of God is at rest, held in God's love as we wait for what's yet to come. This is great, but it's act two. 
<laughs> it's not the end of the show. It gets better than this. And when it gets better is, and I love this line. We'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, but the, the, the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. You know, when Jesus returns, right, as described in Matthew, um, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, and that when that happens, what happens? Well, there is, there is judgment. There is a, just an, an allotment of um, who, who's, who's a sheep and who's a goat, right? What about the idea of the devil being chained for a thousand years and then he'll be loosed and then he'll come again and then it will be the end of the world? So it sounds like there's some kind of a chastisement in between that. Well, that, that would require a lot longer going into Revelation than I am equipped to do right now. Yeah, I know, but that's what... I, and I, I am really suspicious about timelines. Mm -hmm. I, I think somebody who says, well, it's going to be a thousand years, and once this happens, then this will happen, and I can prove it by looking at this verse. I mean, you know, this much I can say about Revelation. A it's not a, a, a road map or a technical manual. Yeah. It's, it's a political allegory applied to the reign of God. But that's a whole other class. Um, anyway, along with this, you know, Jesus comes, and then Paul writing to the Thessalonians, we who are alive, well, well, first the dead in Christ will rise, and then we who are alive will be caught up in the clouds and be with the Lord forever. So there's this event that's coming. There's this thing that's happening, and... How does that exactly look? I don't have the slightest idea. But there's some, something that separates the waiting from the full realization of the kingdom. And, and what it, the, the picture of that is from Revelation 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. And God says, see, I am making all things new. What's interesting, one of the things interesting to me about that is we think about heaven being us going to heaven, or eternal life being us going to heaven. What that actually talks about is God coming to earth remaking creation, the, the reunification of heaven and earth. I think that is the most hopeful thing there is. That's what gets me up in the morning, actually, some days, um, is, is the notion that this whole life gets redeemed at some point, and all is as it's described there. So this is N.T. Wright reflecting on all this. The ultimate destination, like I was saying, is not going to heaven when you die, but being bodily raised into the transformed, glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. Thus, if we want to speak about going to heaven when we die, we should be clear that represents the first and less important stage of a two-stage process. <laughs> the resurrection, I love this, resurrection isn't life after death, it's life after life after death. <laughs> Which is brilliant. I just, I love that. Because it says... Paradise is not suspended animation. You're not, you know, cryogenically frozen till <laughs> Jesus comes back. You're alive in the love of God and experiencing the presence of Christ in bliss. And it gets even better than that. <laughs> so he would say, back to the saints and all that, the apostles and martyrs are not more advanced than those Christians who've died quietly in their beds, <laughs> that all Christians living and departed are to be thought of as saints. And it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's another way of seeing it without purgatory. It's, it's, a, model, it's a model that doesn't, that doesn't use purgatory and actually that makes a really, back to what we were talking about a second ago, makes a really kind of radical, wonderful, radical claim that this is purgatory. That we're being, that's what, the, that's what chapter one is, is, is experiencing those inbreakings of the kingdom of God and struggling 
and struggling to perfect ourselves to go f one step more in the journey to get closer to do to get to do away with the sin that clings so closely all whatever metaphor whatever verse you want to use that that's what this time is for and that then the, the offer of paradise at the end of that is the ultimate expression of grace even if, not even if, even though you won't have gotten rid of all of your sin. No, of course not. We're humans. We're broken. That's why grace matters. Because we are embraced anyway. It's, like I say, it's, it's a model. So this is the last. If, if, if you're looking for, okay, but what do we really think? What does the Episcopal Church really say, Father John? We don't say. Well, we don't here's what we say. We say this, the, this is from, actually, this is from a wonderful section, the last section of the Catechism. Um, this is three of maybe seven or eight questions and answers back there. But, and it's worth some time reading through the whole thing. The title of the section is The Christian Hope, and it really is worth looking at because um, it's so rich. But like all the things in the catechism, it m raises more questions than it answers, and that's the idea, is to raise questions and have us get together in situations like this and go, really? What do you think? Do you think that's true? You know. So, why do we pray for the dead? We pray for them because we still hold them in our love, and because we trust that in God's presence, those who have chosen to serve him will grow in his love until they see him as he is. So we're praying for them on their journey just as we hope they're praying for us on our journey too. What is the communion of saints? This thing that we honor on All Saints Day, All Saints Sunday. The communion of saints is the whole family of God, the living and the dead, and I love this, those whom we love and those whom we hurt, bound together in Christ by sacrament, prayer, and praise. And what, what is that communion of saints doing? What do we mean by everlasting life? By everlasting life, we mean a new existence, chapter 3. A new existence in which we are united with all the people of God in the joy of fully knowing and loving God and each other. Like, sign me up. How about tomorrow? You know? That sounds great. I'd rather be away. <laughs> <laughs> so fully united would be in heaven and there's some kind of making the journey that would be to me in the middle say, say it again Joyce okay at the very end fully united would be we're all in heaven okay and then you said um, bound to heaven on some kind of journey where is that at I've, I've heard bound together in Christ well I still felt there's a journey of some kind that has to be made by most people but there are people that go directly to heaven. I, I'm, I'm not there following There are people question. that go directly to heaven, but I still feel like the way you're, that there is a journey for some people. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I do feel that there is a... Right. No, of, I, I, I know you. And I don't think... And I don't, and <laughs> a I think whole lot of people, people agree with you about that. And I think some people do work out the purgatory on earth. I think of some people that are dying of cancer and horrible stuff that they're going, that's their purgatory. They probably goes, a lot of them probably go straight to heaven after that if they offer them. But if they're still bitter about the whole thing, then no, they won't. All Any, questions. Yep. All questions and no answers. All questions <laughs> and no Well, except, and this is, maybe this is cheating, but I don't think it is. The answer is unconditional love. At the end of the story, whatever you, whenever you see that, however we get there, the answer is the eternal yes, you know, being enveloped in the love of God. I mean... So y there is that <laughs> to look forward to. It does lead to this ultimate question of justice and how we see our neighbors and how we um, compare ourselves, compare others, and kind of this measuring stick. And are you good enough? Are you? Are mm -hmm. we good enough? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we even ask those questions means that we're not there yet. But I think that a lot of this, mm -hmm. God's asking us to really love unconditionally. So yeah. 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 And I think there's this sense that there's this thing that we're trying to put words to and ideas to and uh -huh. theology to that's so completely outside anything we can think or imagine. 
and that it's our best imaginings, that each, each one of these is our best imaginings of something that is so far beyond us. So along that line, this is not my line, I don't want, you'll know who said this probably, but there's a great analogy about trying to understand eternal life, heaven, whatever you want to describe it, as cartoon characters trying to imagine up. <laughs> a two-dimensional being imagining up. If all you know is length and width, height, you could describe height. Somebody could describe height to you, but you can't experience height until you've been transformed into something more. A three-dimensional creature there. I love that. Just because we're just never going to get it until we do. <laughs> well, in, the, in, the, in, in unconditional love, we do not have to be right. Yes. We do not have to get it right. N nor do we have to be perfect. That's right. Yeah. Because if we, if, if, you know, if we're perfect, it actually isn't unconditional love. <laughs> but it is so much a part of our culture that we've got to get it right. Yeah, that's... It's just, it's just pounded into deep. us from yeah. Yeah. kindergarten. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's all I got. Um, I appreciate no no no. I appreciate you. I appreciate the conversation. That was fabulous. This is this is this is why this is a good thing to do. These conversations. So, come back next time. Um, it'll be that two-part series. The beginning of the two-part series. Um, there w it won't be as I don't. Well, it'll be conversational, I'm sure. But there will be more then teaching about the history of the conflict and everything, as well as opportunity for discussion. So thank you for being here.